episode 274 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was uploaded on Sunday 9th of May 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Chris and Melissa Bruntlett moved from Vancouver often billed as one of the world's most attractive cities to live, to make a new life in the Netherlands. They've just bought a house in Delft, and as you'll soon hear, it sounds like this famous urbanist couple will be staying in cycling paradise. I'm Carlton Reed, and in this one-hour show, I asked Chris and Melissa to describe the premise of their great new book, chapter by chapter. I was honoured to learn that I was one of the first to get hold of a PDF of the book, which doesn't actually come out until the end of next month. So this is a fantastic sneak preview for you. And listen on, because there's also a promo code where you can save a chunk of cash for curbing traffic, which will be published by Island Press on June 29th. Chris, Melissa, fantastic. Thank you ever so much for coming back on on the show, because you have been... Uh, on the Spokesman podcast uh, uh, numerous times, um, probably previous books. So you have got this 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 new book, curbing traffic. Now that will be excellent for so many people who listen to this uh, because it's not just about bikes. Because your previous book, and we can talk about that, was about bikes. But mm-hmm. this is just a, the, the basic of getting rid. Of cars. Now, I don't know how we want to do this. Are you going to be because you're in separate rooms in your in your in your fairy tale house in in Delft, which we'll get into in a second. But how how we because previously you've been like sharing a laptop, but you're actually in different rooms and you can come in here. So, so would you? Should I say Melissa, Chris, or are you just gonna? Are we going to do this free form? How, how do you want to do? How do you want to answer the questions? Um, I think we're both pretty good at figuring out who wants to say what or uh jovially interrupting our each other so uh, (laughs) if there's any i think i think if it's a specific question for one of us um that probably you know if you want to direct it that makes sense um but yeah i don't think we'll leave you with any too much dead air right chris no exactly and I, i think usually one of us will start answering a question and the other one will finish it so whoever uh gets in first gets the the lead and and we usually both uh, are on the same wavelength, even if we're not in the same room. So I, I don't have any concerns there. Let's let's in that case, let's kick off with a question that links to that. And just how do you physically write books together? A as a married couple, uh, and B just uh, is somebody writing one sentence and then somebody completes the other one. How, what is your writing method as a couple? <laughs> that's uh, that's actually an excellent question that we get a lot. Um, because a lot of people will say it's impossible to work with your partner, let alone write a book with them. Uh, I think for Chris and I, 
with the first book, we took a very pragmatic approach. We, because we had been writing blogs for so long, individually, we approached each chapter as four individual blogs, and we each selected which uh, section of that we were going to focus on, uh, and then basically married them together. And both reading over, making sure that the styles flow, because I obviously will write a little bit differently than Chris does. Uh, but for this book, we sort of approached it because each each chapter contains a story of part of our experience in the first two years living in Delft. Uh, we basically took ownership of each of those stories. And so if it was something that I experienced more prevalently than Chris, uh, for example, with the Feminist City chapter, then I would lead the writing of that chapter. Or for Chris, uh, the experience of the sound difference and the sound quality in Delft has had uh, a much stronger impact on him, and not that it hasn't on me as well. So that was one that he took ownership of. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, we we go through the chapters, add our little pieces here and there to make it flow, to make sure that it has uh, the emotion along with the hard facts with uh with that and with the data uh and overall come up with what what we're always quite proud of i think yeah i think you you've said it well melissa we you bring the emotion in a lot of cases and i bring the the wonk the policy focus and so um yeah and and so we not only do we complement each other uh well we bring each other's writing back to the middle i think so uh, Melissa will write a segment and I'll go in and, and kind of uh, polish it up and vice versa. I'll write something and she'll de-wonkify it, you know, make it less technical and more uh, approachable. So it's uh, it's kind of, divide, as Melissa said, dividing the chapter up into pieces, each taking a piece, but then going back and rewriting each other's sentences and, and putting your ego aside and just trusting each other to kind of uh, make make the prose better, and, and and eventually, you know, the whole the finished book has probably been read over and revised a dozen times. Uh, but we're finally reached a point where we're ready to let it go, and, and that it's happy, uh, it's suitable for a uh, well, not just a, an urbanism audience, but a mainstream mainstream audience. We're always writing for the uh, the casual reader, if you will. So let's let's get into into the the, the book a little bit more. So it's it's curbing traffic. And it's another Island Press book, so that's that's a disclaimer here. That that's also my publisher, um, who, who did my my couple of books, and you've now got a couple of, of books with them. Um, so quickly, when when is it out? Is it have I got like an advanced copy here, or is it physically going to be out? Yeah, the official release date is June 29th, uh, so it's uh, still a couple months from when we're speaking. But the the pre-orders should start shipping. Uh, Late May, early June, because the the publication date, the actual physical manufacturing date, is about a month before the release date. Um, but you have, most definitely have a a, a early review copy, Carlton, one of the first people to to see it in its in its final form. In which case, I'm very honoured. Thank you very much. And it's an excellent, excellent book, and it's it's just packed and packed and packed with both the emotional part and the statistical the. the uh, the wonky uh, mm-hmm. part, the, the the kind of the the the, the transport professional part. Um, well, you're both transport professionals, anyway. But the, the it's just full of meat, is what I'm trying to <laughs> to say. So it has been a, a fantastic uh, read, and I've really really enjoyed it. And one of my my questions was going to be uh, before I actually physically read the book was going to be 
and we'll get into your biographical details and when you moved to the Netherlands in a second, but it was going to be, you know, is this a stage of your life that you're going through? And, you know, eventually you'll go back to Canada. And then I read that last few paragraphs in, in, in the book and the photograph of you on the stoop, on the, on your outside of your, your wonderful 130-year-old canal side house, in which you've bought a house there. And you're pretty much saying you're living here for the rest of your lives. It's your it's like a fairy tale. So would that be you? You put that in the book. Had you thought about that? Had you had you talked about that before putting that in the book, or was it something that the the book has crystallised for you? I think uh, from the moment we made the decision to move to the Netherlands, I think we both approached it as this could possibly be a very permanent move for us. Um, uh, as we say in the introduction, you know, we we reached sort of a, a moment in Vancouver where we absolutely loved the city. We loved living in, in British Columbia and being surrounded by all the natural beauty. And the city itself is such a wonderful place to live and to raise kids. But we really needed to downsize. We had reached, I guess, that proverbial point in your lives when you're at your late 30s, early 40s, and you want to settle down a little and we found ourselves, prior to even making the decision to move to the Netherlands, struggling to find a city that we could enjoy the quality of life that we did in Vancouver, uh, uh, being car-free in terms of our living circumstance and being able to walk and cycle and enjoy the city uh, without having you know, to rely on cars to get us around. It was really hard to find a place that could mimic that in and around where we were living in Vancouver or even returning back to Ontario in more central can central eastern Canada where our parents and, and uh, siblings live. And so knowing we were coming to a country where we were going to be able to enjoy a similar quality of life in terms of how we moved, we sort of knew that this is likely going to be a rather permanent move uh, for us. And Yes, that was solidified, you know, when we decided to buy a house here and uh, really set some roots down. Um, but I think even before we got here, we knew that this could and very well might be uh, a permanent stay for us. Well, the, the very last chapter of the book is about the idea of aging in place and, and building age-friendly cities. And I think that the very end of the writing process helped us understand that we wanted to live in a city that allowed us to age in place, that didn't force us, um, as our perhaps our, our parents and other relatives, um, to uh, either become reliant on other people for our transportation uh, or, or uh, move elsewhere in the city so that we're more uh, conveniently located to the services that we need. Uh, we knew we had everything we needed in Delft within a 10-minute walk. Uh, and uh, as Melissa said, just the... Uh, Purchasing this home on a canal, five-minute walk from the city center is, is crystallized. Everything we've been uh, thinking about, and we really see ourselves getting old and, and living forever in, in this house uh, because it, it, it's just perfectly located, it's the perfect size, uh, and we don't see ourselves in the future, um, uh, you know, having to be necessarily moving to uh, as if we're looking for uh, proximity, mobility, uh, or other comp make to make other compromises in terms of the location. Uh, Delft is a city where people from young to old can, can exist quite comfortably. 
the book is a love story and it's you as a couple of course and then just you <laughs> falling in love uh with delft that that's absolutely there and and of course and, and getting rid of cars which is a is a, <laughs> is a lovely concept um but the book is about getting rid of cars but might you just the book actually be be you just should move to Delft. If you want to live the lifestyle that you're describing in Delft, this lovely story, shouldn't you just move to Delft? I wouldn't say that. No, I mean, uh, not everyone has the the privilege, the uh, the ability, the means, the uh, and and in terms of physical space, it's impossible to everybody to move to the Netherlands. Um, and and it's certainly not what we're advocating. We're we're quite open in the book that we do have this we have had this privilege. Um, to move here, but there's uh, little do we know when we decided uh, to move to Delft that it was really kind of this this uh, place in the 1970s that tried a lot of different policies from the Vornerf to the traffic circulation plan uh, to the, the low-car city center. Um, these are policies that can be implemented virtually anywhere, and they are starting to be uh, implemented in, in places of the world like Barcelona and Auckland. Um, so our intention was not to say you know, everybody come here to experience this quality of life. It, it's to build this quality of life into your own city simply by uh, treating cars as, as guests rather than as we have in the last 40 to 50 years, treating them as the guests of honor in our uh, urban fabric. Yeah, I think, I think what's, um, I think what I really wanted and what Chris and I, I think both really wanted to sort of challenge is that it shouldn't involve um, or shouldn't be a prerequisite that you have this privilege to be able to move to a city like this. We sh- it shouldn't be that you have to leave where you are to experience a higher quality of life. And so, you know, both of us in our day jobs, we're so focused on exporting a lot of this knowledge to international cities to really help uh, everywhere start to realize the benefits and also start working towards creating these more human focused cities. So we understand that, you know, for example, the suburb of Ontario in Kitchener-Waterloo that we grew up in is never going to be exactly emulating Delft, for example. But there are a lot of things that can be done to help lower car usage, provide people with other options, connect them with their community in a better way that you know, they don't have to move across the Atlantic to a Dutch city to be able to enjoy a better quality of life. These ideas um, should and can and are being applied uh, in order to make sure that for those that don't have the ability to pack up their family and move to another country, another city, that their city can start to uh, enjoy some of these same benefits that we've come to enjoy having lived here. Mm. Now, Melissa, you mentioned your careers there, so that's a good uh, time to introduce the fact that y- you're working for Mobicon, mm-hmm. and then Chris, you're working for the Dutch Cycling Embassy. So, Melissa, first, tell everybody what Mobicon is, and you, you kind of briefly touched upon it there, but just uh, tell us again. And then, Chris, you follow that up by telling us a bit more about the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Yeah, sure. So Mobicon is a Dutch North American consultancy uh, that focuses on uh, sustainable mobility. So here in the Netherlands, there's a lot of focus on all aspects, whether that's walking, placemaking, cycling, or public transport. How do they move to more sustainable choices? Obviously, there is a lot of sustainable sustainable mobility here in the Netherlands, but that doesn't mean there's not room for improvement. Um, but for my part, I work with our international team in exporting a lot of that knowledge, largely focused around cycling, but also placemaking and walking, um, both elsewhere in Europe. So 
uh, across the continent, but we've also done some work in the UK. Uh, and then we have offices in Canada and the US where we are taking a lot of the ideas that Chris and I presented, for example, in the first book in Building the Cycling City and applying them in context uh, through design, through planning, through policy in cities and towns throughout uh, Canada and the US. Yeah, so uh, I find myself in the very strange position that I am a Canadian uh, advocating for the Netherlands as the world's leading cycling nation. But the the uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, as a Dutch cycling embassy, it's a, um, a organization, a public-private partnership that the national government here in the Netherlands started um, basically to export the knowledge and expertise that exists um, here in this country and has been built over the last 50 years or so. So uh, we have about 80 different organizations within our network. They are private consultants such as Mobicon. They are uh, bicycle manufacturers like Gazelle. They are uh, the various municipal governments, uh, universities, and uh, bike parking manufacturers, uh, all looking to work overseas and, and help cities and regions uh, become more bicycle friendly. So we bring teams uh, around the world to host workshops, webinars, to, uh, training, um, and uh, and then inversely, we also do a lot of study tours and, and welcome groups uh, from elsewhere in the world and, and take them for tours and uh, and classroom sessions to learn from the uh, the amazing conditions here. And so, um, yeah, as, as I said, I, I'm marketing and communication manager selling Dutch cycling as, as this uh, foreigner, as this international outside voice. But I, I think it just speaks volumes to how uh, normalized and, and uh, uh, mundane cycling has become here that, that most people who live here don't think it's it's special or recognize it as uh, something that should be spread or, or exported around the world. In your book, you, you mention on that point that, you know, when you go, you have been abroad um, and then you come back, you, you kind of hear the bird song. You hear the quietude of, of Delft. And of course, a lot of people have roughly the same thing. Uh, even in the most busy, you know, urban cities with with uh, COVID nineteen coronavirus, where people in cities heard birdsong again, so we kind of all had that that brief glimpse of what you're getting on a, a daily basis. Do you think that uh, COVID nineteen might actually help um, urbanists, people interested in getting rid of cars, to actually get rid of cars? Well, I think for Chris and I, that's certainly the hope. Um, we found ourselves in this interesting position when we were writing the book. So we had pitched it to Island Press uh, and it had everything approved and it started the initial writing process before the pandemic hit. And uh, we actually had several moments when we were writing the first few chapters where we're like, is this even going to be relevant anymore, what we're writing? Because everyone is experiencing exactly what we're trying to promote. Um, but I think, and Chris would probably agree that I think the challenge now is to not return to the status quo, uh, which we have seen happen in a few cities as things start to open up again, um, that this return to car use or um, for busier cities, it, it, losing some of that quality that a lot of people experienced. And so uh, we really hope that with that knowledge, with that experience, plus what we've written in the book, it helps to really solidify why it's really important because yeah, that, that bird song we have, we remember uh, Clarence Eckerson in, in New York commenting, he was in the heart of Manta Manhattan hearing birds 
And, you know, who wouldn't want that on a much more regular basis in New York City to be able to hear the natural world around you? And so, uh, yeah, I guess the challenge now is to to recognize how important that experience was and, and should be continued. Um, but, yeah, I, I remain pessimistically optimistic. Uh, maybe Chris feels a little bit differently, but uh, yeah, I, I, it was amazing that that was all happening as we were writing this, and I really hope it helps to reinforce what we were saying. Well, I think you know historically, much is made of the Netherlands uh, experiencing the OPEC oil crisis in the 1970s, and the six weeks where they suddenly um, had uh, a gasoline shortage and, and the sale of bicycles doubled. Um, it was kind of this light bulb moment as a society when they realized they had to build a, a more resilient transport system and and um, and look at their streets a little bit differently, both in terms of the politicians, but also in, in terms of the general population. And uh, we're seeing sparks of that light bulb moment now in, in cities around the world. We always joked beforehand that uh, to make these changes, people would need to come to the Netherlands to experience them firsthand, but they really experienced them on their front porch and on their front doorstep. Um, for albeit uh, you know a short period of time, but suddenly they were out on their streets, sometimes playing tennis, uh, interacting with their neighbors for the first time, breathing the air, smelling the ocean if they live by the sea, hearing the birds, um, seeing what their city looked like with fewer cars uh, zooming around, and now, as as Melissa's hinted, is is capturing that momentum, supporting elected officials that are going to uh, implement some of the pop up changes that have been made, whether it's pop up bike infrastructure or pop-up dining terraces, um, but making sure that this uh, moment turns into a movement for uh, cities that are uh, prioritize the people that live in them rather than the uh, vehicles, the motor vehicles that they drive. Now, Island Press is, of course, a climate change specialist publisher. Um, so it must have been a, a relatively easy pitch. I mean, it's never an easy pitch ever, but uh, it must have been a relatively easy pitch to say to a climate change publisher, we want to write a book about getting rid of cars. Was that something that they just went, oh, yes, we absolutely need a book like that? How, how was that, that uh, publication process? How did that go for you? Actually, uh, it was quite difficult, to be honest. Uh, I don't think um, we always uh, package this as our personal story uh, that would include uh, some of the anecdotes of us moving here. And I don't think Island Press have really published a book like that before. I think they're very kind of uh, policy nonfiction. Uh, Te technical uh, stuff. Exactly, exactly. So we had some convincing to do, to be honest, uh, to get them on board. And, uh, you know, ultimately we didn't know. Um, well, we didn't want to write Building the Cycling City 2. We didn't want to just, uh, you know, tell the same story or, or a slightly different story. We wanted to make this project personal. We wanted to make it emotive, uh, use our, our, engage the reader, use our, help them to experience what we've experienced here, bring them along for a journey, uh, but also include some, some technical uh, facts and figures to back up our case. But um, yeah, it, it was a bit of a, a pitch uh, to get them to come along for the ride, not to mention, you know, we were, uh, promotion for this book is going to look a lot different than the first book with us both working day jobs and, having relocated to Europe. Um, there was not going to be any kind of uh, multi-week tour of America, Canada, Australia, mm -hmm. New Zealand, as there was the first time around. Um, so a lot has changed since uh, since we wrote our first book. And, and so 
we're having to adapt and, and also bring Island Press along for for the ride. But we hope their their faith in us will be rewarded uh, again. Tough to say that that this is one of my favorite bits because there's so many favorite bits, of course, in in your book. It's it's wonderful. Um, but I found especially cute the the bits of Dutch that uh, you put into the book. And, and, and I'm very pleased that you've put those uh, bits of Dutch into the book because it really adds a lot of flavour. Yes, you're learning the language, of course, but you're also learning, you know, really cute parts of the language. You know, these kind of, you know, aphorisms and, and words and phrases that uh, are just so uh, uh, wonderful. Now, one of them I, I picked out was, and I'm, of course, you're going to be able to pronounce this much better than me, Utwien, uh, which is wind bath. Yes. So describe what a wind bath. Oh, that's a fantastic <laughs> concept. What, what's a wind bath? And, 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 and please correct my pronunciation. Uh, yeah, so that would be an outwein, um, which, uh, funnily enough, Chris and I seem to be experiencing every day. It's been a very windy April and May <laughs> or, or, you know, a year here in the Netherlands. Um, but essentially, that's the concept of uh, going out and getting fresh air or fresh news. Um, you know, having the wind in your face, sort of washing away uh, any of the stresses of the day or the week or the month. And, you know, it's, you know, in Canada, we would talk about going out to get a breath of fresh air. Similarly, but in this case, you have uh, quite heavy winds in your face. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an experience to have the first few times. But I, I, I understand why that now having lived here for as long as we have, uh, why it's important for people because it's just this like removal of uh, yeah just the stress uh, that most of us experience you know being whether you have a family or you're working full-time or ho- however you might experience stress it's just a way to wash that all away uh, in what is a very prevalent force of nature here in the country <laughs> uh, and I think in the book and I'll let Chris no talk hills. about it more yeah exactly <laughs> no hills lots of wind yeah, I just realized though that you you use the term uh, "free snooze" without actually translating it. So we oh, yeah. this is another <laughs> brilliant brilliant turn of phrase from the Dutch, which literally means "fresh nose." Um, so when they say they're going out to get fresh air, it's actually kind of they're going to get a fresh nose. But yeah, I, I mean it 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 just comes back to this connection with nature that the Dutch have in their cities because they haven't paved over every square inch of it. So. Uh, by having fewer uh, room for cars, fewer lanes, uh, more roundabouts that are vegetated, they've got room for more trees, more grass, more. Uh, and then the compact cities allow for a greater proximity to the surrounding polders and forests and nature. Uh, but you're never very far from greenery or uh, water. Uh, and this acts as a, a therapeutic uh, uh, sensation that, that uh, improves people's mental health, their overall well-being and and again I, I think it's something that we we often neglect when we talk about city living we assume that it has to be stressful and uh and and uh bleak and and and, and asphalt everywhere when we can if we simply uh reallocate the space on our cities create greenery uh that's interwoven with the uh the streets and intersections and uh, the public spaces I'm going to pick out another phrase and you can give me the Dutch. I'll give you just the English because I will absolutely guarantee I'll murder the Dutch. But the phrase is, uh, we're not the same, but we're worth the same. So what's if you can remember what's that in Dutch and then just describe roughly what it's talking about. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the exact um, Dutch turn of phrase because um, 
it's slightly different, but this is uh, in the in the context of a really egalitarian society. So uh, we make this point that um, streets are accessible to everybody, whether they have a, a you know a fifty thousand Mercedes fifty thousand euro Mercedes Benz or a, a fifty euro bicycle, and, and that's really ingrained in the culture here. That uh, there's a real sense of equity, uh, and so uh, it, there's not this. Uh, class-based reinforced uh, class reinforced uh, system uh, that uh, permeates all levels of society, not the least of which are their their streets and cycle tracks and and, and public spaces. So where yeah, I'm coming at? Oh, sorry, sorry, did you find the phrase, Melissa? No, no, I'm googling it because now I can't remember it. I'm even searching in the manuscript, and of course, it's not finding it for me. And I'm I know the phrase. Yeah, it's this, but yeah. Forget that. Carry on. No, I, that was very cruel of me to, to throw not just one word, but like a whole <laughs> phrase at you. So I do apologize. But where I guess where I was coming at it from, and the, the reason why I, I, I picked at that uh, was, so that's, that's a, a, a cultural norm in the Netherlands. So my question is, you know, to curb traffic, to get rid of motor cars, you, you, you need certain things. You need cultural changes, not just physical, um, you know, concrete and curbs and and lane width. All those kind of changes. You need a cultural switch as well. So, is that not the most difficult thing to actually fix? You can fix engineering, but can you really fix how a, a, a people, a nation, a group actually think? about mobility, about uh, priority on the streets? And is it just not the fact that, well, the Netherlands have got this dialed in and you ain't going to be able to translate that fully anywhere else? Uh, yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would say that it's absolutely possible. And I think one of the benefits I think we have of having lived in a city like Vancouver is that we watched as things changed. Uh, so as that infrastructure started to be built and more and more people started to experience getting around uh, the city more on bicycle, uh, on foot or, or a combination thereof with public transport, we saw a cultural shift. And it's but the thing is, it's not going to be fast. And this is one thing that Chris and I say all the time is we're talking about change, cultural change over gener a generation, um, which for a lot of us working in uh, mobility and in urbanism can be quite frustrating because we can see, we know what the benefits are. We've seen it in action in in various places, but it, to not see it immediately or have that immediate gratification in, in our own cities can be very challenging, but I, I see it as possible. And, uh, you know, as you were speaking, Carlton, it made me think of when we were interviewing uh, one of our friends in the U S who was talking about, uh, women and cycling and how, you know, oftentimes when they build new cycle tracks in cities, if, if they don't see anyone using it or they only see it used once in a while, then it's deemed a failure. But for her, she says that, you know, if you see one woman cycling on that cycle track with a child, that is a success. That's proof that this is something people want and it's just going to take time to build. And, you know, we saw that in Vancouver where when we first moved there, Cycling was definitely something niche, something for the fit and the brave. And then over the course of the 11 years that we lived there, we saw more and more families cycling, more and more people of various ages and abilities and races cycling. Uh, so 
I think it's absolutely possible. Uh, and I don't think you necessarily have to have that uh, pragmatic culture that we have, we see people have here in the Netherlands. It, it can be done. Uh, it takes patience, unfortunately, but I think it's absolutely possible. And uh, it just takes showing people what is what is possible when we start building safer streets with space for fewer cars and more space for public life. Well, it's, it's, sorry. So I found the expression and I'm going to try and pronounce it. It's, so it's niet gelijk, maar wel gelijkwaardig. Uh, we're not the same, but we're worth the same. Um, and it, it uh, I think you framed it one way, Carlton, is, is, is does there need to be a cultural change to facilitate a structural change, but um, maybe we can, we can look at it the other way and, and, uh, looking here in the Netherlands, were the structural changes that were made to the streets in the 1970s, uh, did they influence the cultural changes that we're seeing today? And, and this is what we explore in the chapter about the trusting city is how more people on foot and bicycle making eye contact, having to collaborate with one another to, uh, negotiate intersections and, and share space, um, how that builds a more trusting society. Uh, of people that are accepting of other people's uh, differences and cultures. And, and, um, and it's really interesting to think how our transport systems and our mobility systems uh, may make our society more egalitarian um, rather than sitting back and saying, well, only egalitarian societies could undergo these changes. Um, chicken and egg. And, and, and hopefully we can, we can pick a place to start and, and uh, rather than, pointing at external factors as reasons why we can't um, integrate these uh, these important measures. Well, that's, that's very good to hear, uh, if that's the case. So we, we can change. Um, I'd like to now cut to an ad break. But after the ad, I, I would like to go through your book chapter by chapter, because you mentioned the trusting city there. And there are there are 10 chapters and a conclusion. So I, w- I want you to describe uh, each chapter. I want you to give like a, a short praise here of each chapter. And I'm going to Give one to Melissa and one to, to Chris. There's your forewarning. That's what I'm going to be asking for next. But right now, let's go to an ad break with David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And we are back with Chris and Melissa Bruntlett. And uh, they're in their fairy tale house uh, in 
in the in the fairy tale city of Delft in, in the Netherlands. And they've been telling us um, why they moved there, uh, how much they're loving it. And before we get on to uh, going through and getting a praise of each each uh, chapter in their book, I just want to talk about their kids. Um, because that, that's absolutely a, a key component. We're not doing any privacy issues here because the, the, Chris and Melissa, your kids are mentioned throughout the book and their experiences are mentioned throughout the book, which, which, is, which is very, very um, inspiring and, and, and heartening. But let's just talk about uh, Coralie and mm-hmm. Etienne. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, the ages of 12 and 10, so Coralie 12, Etienne, that was when you moved in 2019. So they're now older. Yeah. Uh, Coralie is now 14 and a half and Etienne is 12. And uh, yeah, we've got, well, Coralie started right in high school. We've got another child about to join them uh, in high school as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it, they're doing well uh, as far as, we're, <laughs> as far as they tell us anyways, you know, having a teenager and a preteen, they sh- certainly start to keep a few things from their parents now and then. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting experience for them. I won't lie and say that uh, it was rosy from the start. We had, you know, a bit of melancholy when we first moved here. They certainly miss their peers uh, that they had built relationships with back in Vancouver. Um, but we did actually do a check-in. We were on holiday last week. They're currently on uh, their uh, May vacation uh, for two weeks. And, and we went away and asked, you know, it's been two years. How are you feeling? Do you still hate us? Did we make the worst decision of our lives <laughs> taking you guys here? Uh, and they both uh, said emphatically that they're happy that we're here. They, of course, still miss their friends, but they, they've they come to appreciate living here, uh, which is good. We'll see if that continues, you know. We've still got a few more years before they're adults and fully appreciate where we're at in life. But uh, yeah, I think... I think they're doing okay, as much as they tell us anyways. Yeah, I think Melissa and I both did similar moves as children of around 10 years age. I actually moved from the UK to Canada. She moved from Eastern Canada, French Canada to uh, Ontario. So we're kind of familiar with the circumstances and we were quite careful about um, giving them the time and space they needed to adjust and integrate. Uh, they went straight into a Dutch language school in the middle of the school year in February, um, and which couldn't have been easy. But uh, they really, I think, surprised us uh, with how resilient they were, how quickly they made friends, how quickly they learned uh, the city. And, and of course, as we, we write in the first chapter, um, the, the traffic comp streets and the, the cycle tracks really just gave them this uh, freedom that we anticipated, but never really... Uh, understood how quickly or how uh, uh, amazing it would be that, to uh, give them suddenly this uh, this autonomy and independence uh, of, of getting around A to B without mum and dad uh, at their side. Because you 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 quote Lorna Skenazi in the book, and and she's famous for you know the free range kids, you know, no helicopter uh, parenting approach, and and you've basically taken that concept and you've you've. I would like to say ran with it, but you've cycled with it. You've you've given your kids the freedom, the kind of freedom that kids in the US, kids in the in Canada, kids in the UK do not have. Sure. And, and we actually flirted with that freedom in Vancouver. You know, we would within reason allow them to walk uh, to the corner store or to their school or to the community center. But the problem was the built environment would not support that uh, that freedom. And and so we found ourselves worrying about faded crosswalks that drivers would ignore about 
footpaths that would disappear every time they crossed the side street, about six lanes of traffic uh, that was cutting through our neighborhood um, that they would have to cross. Uh, and and um, that made giving them that freedom and independence a very difficult choice. And, and more often than not, we found ourselves supervising them for short trips when we really wanted them to let them spread their wings and, 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 and to get around independently. So we're, I think, all quite relieved that we now live in a place, uh, a built environment that supports that freedom. And uh, um, it, it speaks volumes to how uh, the prevalence of car traffic uh, really um, has, has robbed children of their freedom um, and, and, and forced them to be constantly under supervision uh, and rely on their parents for their transportation needs. So that was chapter one, in effect, in your book. So the, the child-friendly city is, is chapter number one after the introduction, of course. So if I can now ask you, uh, in turn, to describe the other chapters, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention which chapter, obviously we'll go chronologically, um, if, but if you could just take it in turn to, to tell us what it's, uh, that chapter's about. You'd have to, like, you know, give the whole game away, but just, you know, briefly what that, that, that chapter's about. So chapter number two is the connected city. What's, what's, what's the thing going on there? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this to Chris. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, unbeknownst to us, when we moved to Delft, uh, this was a city where the Wunerf was invented, the living street, this concept of reclaiming the space outside your front door for play, social activity, uh, gathering, and uh, interaction with your neighbors. And um, for a long time, we've been aware of uh, Donald Appleyard and his uh, really groundbreaking research in the 1970s about how the volume and uh, speed of traffic outside your front door really... Um, limits your connections on your street, your friends, acquaintances with uh, your neighbors and the time you spend on the, your street and the sense of ownership that you spend on your street. Um, so we really want to explore how uh, prioritizing the, the speed and, and volume of cars outside our front door uh, impacts our social relationships with our friends and neighbors. And, and we interject with some personal experiences, uh, unexpected encounters with uh, people living on our street to, that kind of reinforces this research um, and, and makes the case that uh, that perhaps we should be uh, looking at, uh, well, what they're implementing in London is low traffic neighborhoods, but uh, this idea of not banning cars altogether, but uh, treating them as, as guests, on, uh, particularly on our residential streets. Okay, Melissa, chapter three, The Trusting City. Yeah, uh, this this chapter, I think it, it's it's really about it, it takes the concepts of the first or the last chapter, the connected city and extrapolates that to the broader society. So uh, the way in which people move around their city, if it's a much more um, human scale way of moving around, whether that's walking, cycling or some other form of uh, human mobility, uh, it forces you to start connecting with the people you're moving around the city with and really uh, creates a social trust because uh, here, especially here in the Netherlands, traffic lights are often removed. Uh, there's no traffic signage. And so you're forced to interact with the people that you're moving around the city with. Uh, and that does include cars, you know, having and what the design of the street really forces people to make eye contact, to acknowledge each other. And that leads to a much more uh, interactive experience, but also much more trusting. You know, if you look at someone, if you're forced to make eye contact, that uh, 
how they react to you, that they acknowledge you being in that space will ultimately affect how you navigate around each other in the space in which you're moving. Uh, we interviewed Marcos Bromostrot for that for this chapter, uh, who talks a lot about how speed really impacts our ability to be able to uh, approach our society and the way and our interactions in the city in a much more calm and trusting way. Uh, and so when we're moving in fast cars, when everything's racing by us, we become very insular. It's about our trip and our journey and anything that gets in the way becomes and very negative. Whereas when you start to slow the way we move down, you're forced to interact with people. You're forced to suddenly acknowledge the existence of the people around you. And it just creates a much more uh, trusting environment. And we obviously get much more into what that means in terms of uh, the city itself and and society at, at a larger scale because of these forced moments of interaction uh, with our fellow human beings. And I should just say that uh, Marco there is cycling professor. So if people on Twitter who follow um, Chris and Melissa on Twitter, I'm sure they also follow uh, Marco, the cycling professor. Um, Chris, the feminist city, chapter four. I think I'm going to defer to Melissa because this is uh, uh, her. Uh... No, no, no. I, I constructed the way. <laughs> I knew if I started with the child-friendly city, I knew I'd, I'd actually counted it. I don't, I'll, I'll get Chris to do chapter four. So no, 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 you can't. You've got to um, tell us about it, Chris. Okay, sure. Yeah, no, I think uh, the way that we have built uh, our, our urban fabric, our, our cities, our transportation networks up to this point, has been very male centric and, and men tend to disproportionately uh, drive motor vehicles. They take uh, longer distance, single purpose trips. Um, and uh, inversely that leaves um, women uh, out of the equation and, and doesn't take their travel patterns in, into consideration, which are often more sustainable, uh, foot, bicycle or public transport. They're usually shorter distance trips. They're usually multi-purpose trips. Um, because they are still doing predominantly the, the care work. And so uh, we delve into this idea of care trips, and, and, and which are, again, disproportionately made by women, uh, and how we can build transportation networks um, that facilitate those care trips. And it, as you can imagine, it comes down to um, fine-grained cycling networks. It comes down to great walking conditions. It comes down to giving children the freedom so that their, their moms don't have to necessarily uh, take them, pick them up and drop them off at, at school. So uh, a, a city that doesn't just uh, accommodate the, the single purpose, one way commute for uh, a predominantly male driver. And that's largely historically been done because uh, the people in, in the decision making chambers are uh, affluent uh, men that, uh, that we've, uh, we can look at uh, Building more equity in, in, in terms of gender equity um, by by simply um, building more walking and, and cycling and, and better, faster, more frequent public transportation to support those trips that they're already making and, and make their lives a lot easier. Okay, nice summary. Uh, chapter five, Melissa. That will be the Hearing City, and I guess we're going to have some bird song here. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the benefit of you know when we remove. Uh, excessive numbers of cars in our city and we really reduce the sounds that they contribute to in the city you start to hear a lot more of the natural world 
But one of the things that I think is really important in this chapter is not just the ability to hear the beautiful bird songs, but also the impact that has on us as individuals on our, our mental state and our overall stress by reducing the amount of ambient noise that we experience. Uh, and I think uh, it's actually funny because I was just watching um, Pretend It's a City on Netflix with Fran Leibowitz, and she uh, refers to the the noise of New York City, and that's just a part of it. You know, we don't want to escape the noise. This is our noise. But I think uh, there's not that recognition that goes along with that of the stress that that noise creates uh, in terms of uh, just us as individuals. If you're constantly in this hyper noisy environment, you're always on alert, you're always at attention, you're always in that uh, fight or flight kind of mode. And so what this chapter, what I love that it delves into is that when we create these calmer ambient environments with lower decibels of noise, what that means uh, for the citizens in general, not just the ability to hear the nature or hear the bricks as people cycle by or uh, hear people enjoying a beer on a patio, but overall, in you know, really increasing that enjoyment of the city itself and uh, a sense of calm for us as individuals. And yeah, so I love that you know, birdsong is so much a part of that, or or just the natural sounds of of the city. But you know, what that means to us uh, as individuals, I think, is an important conversation, an emerging conversation, and and we delve into that in this chapter. Okay, Chris, you're up next because you are going to have to talk about the therapeutic city. Yeah, so building on this idea of uh, calming environments, uh, we, we do a bit of a dive with our friend Robin Mazander, who recently completed his PhD on this exact topic, mental health and the urban environment, um, and, and look at the way that uh, car-dominated environments really... Um, diminish our mental health uh, as a source of stress, as a source of noise, um, and really, uh, well, as we were talking about earlier, reduce the amount of green space we have access to, um, and really um, have these um, subtle ways that they are uh, um, testing us as as human beings, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and, and this was uh, a chapter we wrote uh, uh, just after lockdown started, um, where, again, I think everyone in the world suddenly gained a newfound appreciation for the ability to just get outside, move their body, uh, have some kind of a socially distant social interaction, make uh, talk to people from a distance. Um, and, and this was uh, a key way that they um, kept uh, their sanity, if you will, uh, under some very stressful conditions and, and, and otherwise they were locked down in their homes. So I think we, uh, like everyone, gained a newfound appreciation for, especially in Delft here, uh, being able to get outside for a bike ride, a walk in the city centre, a, a, uh, a, a meandering uh, pedal through the polders, um, all of them of a means to um, unwind uh and uh, de-stress from, uh, you know, we were still working jobs, we were still uh, trying to make ends meet uh, internally, but those little breaks that we have, uh, it is possible to build them into our cities um, to give people that opportunity to, uh, to de-stress and, and re-energize. And, uh, uh, well, it's, it's a form of therapy, as we said, the, this, um, this uh, wind bath or, or a variety of cultures have their own versions of it. 
Um, but at the end of the day, it's about a, a, a means of improving your mental health. This next chapter, chapter seven, is the world's shortest chapter, uh, the world's most obvious uh, chapter, because it's the accessible city. Oh, that's an excellent point. But I think, you know, one of the things with this chapter, uh, there's it's two parts to this, in that um, being mostly able-bodied most of the time, I had a brief stint recently with a broken leg that reduced my ability uh, to move around. Um, but we really felt compelled to speak to somebody who has experienced a Dutch city uh, as someone with limited mobility. So we interviewed a wonderful woman named Maya who shared her story of living with multiple multiple sclerosis and getting around uh, in the Netherlands. And, you know, in talking to her, there are things uh, that we didn't realize, uh, including the fact that, you know, we enjoy traffic calm streets and we enjoy walking around on the street once in a while. And it, there's a bit of for us, liberation and that having grown up in North America where there's no way you would dream of walking in the middle of the street in the middle of the day. But she points out that that actually enables her to be more independently mobile. And that's something we also delve into more with Dr. Bridget Burdett from New Zealand, who who really talks about this idea of when we're thinking about uh, people with disabilities and how they move through the city, there's so much focus on making sure that we have roads in order to allow them to be able to transport more freely in cars or in public transport, when in fact, that is the adverse of what a lot of these individuals want. They don't want to be dependent on somebody to move around. They want to be independent uh, for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is to have ownership of your own mobility is to have a sense of freedom and joy in terms of how you get around. And so this chapter, I I totally agree. It could be simple and say, yes, make your cities accessible, period, end of story. But understanding why it's so important and, you know, how cars do limit how people with various uh, disabilities, whether that's um, mobility disabilities or sight, uh, hearing, any of these things, by reducing the ability or the possibility of conflict with motor vehicles and enabling more independent mobility, we are inherently telling these people, you are not other, you are not separate from society, you are a part of it, and we want to facilitate you owning your ability to be a part of society. Mm, And as a guide dog puppy trainer, I am absolutely uh, anti-car on on that particular uh, aspect because so many cars are parked on sidewalks, on pavements. And it's only when you really you get a guide dog and you have to, to, to walk around that you really realize that this is so selfish, so entitled and, and, and so blocking for anybody that doesn't have, you know, uh, feet to walk and, to, uh, and, and eyes to see. Because mm-hmm. it's, it makes cities incredibly difficult to, to navigate if you've got these big uh, four wheel vehicles parked on the infrastructure that's actually meant for pedestrians, which I'm, I'm guessing you don't get that much of in the Netherlands. They kind of designed that out. Uh, we do get that. You know, we have our own set of challenges. I think historic cities have uh, mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly narrow sidewalks and footpaths. And so, yeah, mm. that's one of the things that Maya actually says is, I don't, I never use the footpath. It's too hard for me. There's either a sign, sandwich boards on it, or they're too narrow, or they're old and a bit crumbly. And so the road infrastructure is, is how she gets around. She uses the cycle tracks, she uses the traffic calm streets. And, you know, not Mm -hmm. just for getting around Delft, but for getting even further uh, outside of the city. So 
yeah, hearing her story and, and, and hearing how motor vehicles through the rest of the chapter are really helping to not to enable these people, but really hinder their mobility is, is an important topic that uh, anyone working in mobility and urban design needs to hear uh, or read, I guess, in this case, <laughs> in terms well, of changing their thinking. And I, unfortunately, I think it, it has become a bit of a um, counterpoint when you start talking about restricting car traffic, removing car parking, um, and that you've seen it, especially with the low traffic neighborhoods in, in London. The first thing people say is, what about the disabled? As if you are uh, restricting the mobility of everyone with a disability, that they rely solely on a, a private automobile to get from A to B. When the statistics we pulled out prove actually the, the exact opposite, I think 60% of the people uh, with a physical disability in the UK do not have access to their own motor vehicle. But the physical disability has been used as this um, as a, an excuse to build in more car dependence. Unfortunately, um, when the the facts and figures don't don't uh, um, prove that out, and, and it's usually able-bodied people that are using the disabled as a um, a, a bit of a trope, unfortunately, to uh, argue that cities should not uh, limit their uh, automobility. So if we're going to build back better, and, 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 and your thesis is that w- w- to do that, you curb cars, uh, y- you're going to get a richer city. So chapter eight is the prosperous city. So how are we going to get more prosperous cities, Chris? Yeah, um, this was a... Um, Again, a chapter that we had proposed before before the pandemic, um, but for us, it, it really came down to access to opportunity. I think um, coming from Canada and, and also, you know, spending a lot of time in the United States, we saw how car dependency was really robbing people of uh, their access to opportunity, or their society required the uh, the expense of a private automobile. Which is now twenty or, or you know twelve thousand dollars per year when you take all expenses into consideration, and that's really inequitable and unfair burden to expect for people, especially of, of low income. And so, uh, but that's only because the options, the alternatives, uh, the more uh, economic alternatives do not exist. And so, uh, we look at the kind of uh, public transportation system that exists here in the Netherlands. Uh, in combination with the cycling network, how the two really reinforce each other, uh, support each other to provide uh, a broader uh, cross-section of the population with access to affordable housing, to uh, steady uh, employment, to education, to healthcare, to all of their daily needs uh, without necessarily the the financial burden of their own private automobile. And, and so uh, we can speak to this ourselves. Okay, we're, you know, not in a low-income bracket, but uh, without the expense of a car, we suddenly have more money to spend in our community, on small businesses, uh, and, uh, and uh, I think... You bought a house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, we are actually, you know, we're in this very privileged position actually to walk, work four days per week instead of the traditional five-day work week, uh, which is something more Dutch companies are doing, but we probably couldn't do without the uh, if we were paying the, the monthly car payments and, and parking and, and gasoline. And, and Okay, Melissa, chapter nine, the resilient city. What does it mean to create a resilient city? And we interviewed Dr. Judith Yang for the, or Wang, sorry, for this chapter. And 
she really helped to change our thinking a little bit because when we look at a resilient city, we think, okay, this is a city that can uh, sustain itself long-term despite potential natural disturbances or unnatural or man-made disturbances. But what she argues uh, in this chapter and and what helps to uh, open our eyes a little bit is that there's two ways for a city to be resilient. One is that you've designed it in a way that even if you have impact, be that something as small as construction or something much larger like a natural disaster, the city can uh, easily return back to its status quo. But one of the things that we need to look at really when we're talking about resiliency is can we adapt? Can we change? And can we flip that uh, regime to be uh, stable or resilient in a different way? So that's the way we sort of reflect that is looking back at this OPEC oil crisis and how here in the Netherlands, it wasn't a matter of when that oil reserve became available again, they just went back to the status quo, but rather found a different way of thinking, flipped the way that they were designing their cities, the way that they were managing them to a different stability regime to allow for much more human-centered travel. Uh, and so it, it presents these opportunities and really reflects on the idea that as humans, we evolve, we adapt, our cities evolve and adapt with us. And so resiliency is not about making sure that your city can stay the same, but that you can adapt in a way that leads to arguably a higher quality of life and a better city overall for its citizens. Tell me more about the aging city. Yeah, I think, as I hinted at earlier, we've watched our our parents and our grandparents get old in fairly car dependent places. And uh, in some instances, they've really been trapped uh, in their houses, uh, for lack of a, <laughs> a better way to put it, uh, completely dependent on a uh, when there's there is a period of our lives inevitably when we cannot drive safely. Uh, the American automobile says it's on average ten years uh, for a U.S. Uh, senior citizen where they outlive their ability to drive safely, and in that ten-year period, we're left with very few options. We're either uh, relying on a public transportation system that that's infrequent and unreliable, or we're forced to rely on our children, our a- adult children, or uh, neighbors for transportation, or we uh, are trapped in our homes in in our neighborhoods, or we are institutionalized in, in a care home. Uh, and I think uh, uh, there's a lot to be said about uh, neighborhoods, cities, uh, largely uh, you know low car places that actually allow people to age in place comfortably without being reliant on others, uh, external forces for their mobility. And so we tell the story of Peter, uh, one of our neighbors here in Delft that has been born and raised uh, his entire life on the street. Uh, He was born there. uh, And now in his 70s, he's retired there, living in uh, his own house without a car, uh, able to uh, get around by foot or bicycle everywhere he needs, the grocery store, the community center, uh, the schools that, that he volunteers at uh, to stay active in the community. Uh, and that's all supported, again, by the, the infrastructure and the, the policy decisions that were made uh, many years ago to uh, build a city that's not car dependent and, and car dominant. Um, so when we look ahead at, at this baby boom generation that's retiring and, and aging very quickly, um, we suddenly find ourselves with an entire generation that's going to be trapped uh, in the neighborhoods that they've built, the car-dependent places they've built. And uh, I think it's very urgent to to start looking at that as a, a, the challenge and the 
kind of emergency that it is, uh, and, and giving them uh, means of mobility. And, and of course, we, we talk about cycling as, as one route, but it is not an option for everybody. Uh, but there's a lot to be said, but the fact that the age group uh, of 65 and above cycles more than any other adult group here in the Netherlands. So it's cycling is a means of participating in society. It's a means of staying healthy, active, uh, and, and, uh, and, and part of society. And uh, uh, we often elsewhere in the world perhaps think of cycling as a young, able-bodied activity. But in, in a lot of sense, it, it benefits uh, the aging population much more and, and gives them an alternative to drive when they can no longer drive. Mm. Uh, well, thank you ever so much for uh, going through uh, those 10 chapters uh, with us. Uh, and I know people are going to be absolutely now busting a gut to, to want to get this when it comes out in in June. So to wrap up the show, if, if you wouldn't mind, Chris, if you could uh, tell us about all your social media, because you have got quite a few. So all your social media uh, hats, where people can actually uh, get in touch with you. But then but first, Melissa, if you could uh, tell people where... Uh, people are going to be able to get the book from. Uh, tell us again the exact publication date. Give us the the, the price. Give us how many pages. Got. Give us give us that kind of information. Ah, oh, price. That's a great one. I don't know. <laughs> it's a affordable book. That's what I know. Um, but you can buy it directly from our publisher, Island Press, uh, from islandpress.org. Org, I believe, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, listeners in the UK, we actually have a, a pre-sale promo code set up with Marston Books, which are the U.S. Uh, sorry, the U.K. distributor of Island Press. Um, so if you go to their website, Marston M A R S T O N dot co dot uh, and cite the promo code I S C T, you can get thirty percent off of uh, a copy of Curbing Traffic and thirty percent off of our first book, Building the Cycling City, um, which is uh, significant savings to say the least. Cool. I will absolutely put that in the in the, the show notes if you if you send me the absolute perfect link so i get that uh, and also what i'm gonna put in the show notes uh, are all your social media handles so tell us about that chris hmm. yes as you uh, hinted we are uh, quite <laughs> prolific on, on social this, media this, this is the next half an hour of the show yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, melissa and i have a, a shared account at monacity life so m-o-d-a-c-i-t-y-l-i-f-e on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Uh, I am uh, doing the social media for the Dutch Cycling Embassy these days at cycling underscore embassy, uh, again, on all four of those platforms. And likewise, Melissa is doing social media for Mobicon at Mobicon, uh, M-O-B-Y-C-O-N. And uh, yeah, you can get your daily dose of Dutch inspiration from all three of those accounts. Thanks to Chris and Melissa Bruntlett there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesmen.com. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.